When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the latest episode of your new favorite podcast. It's the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we're hanging with you today. We're going to be talking about two icons on the latest episode here. It's about Lane and Kurt and April. A very dark, rainy month for many people. Two musicians that were voices of a generation, as we have seen over many generations of great rock and roll music. As we uh, make the transition, here in spring from the end of April into May. I'm remembering April 1994 and how it started. April 5th. That's the date. We First, we, we talked about this. We have to establish, we're going to talk about April 5th as the date, but that's based on estimates by, you know, uh, coroner reports and things like that. But April 5th in 1994 is the date that they estimate that Kurt Cobain took his life in his house in Tacoma, which we just talked about last week on the podcast. That may vary a little bit, but they didn't find his body right away. Uh, what was it? A repairman came to the door, uh, was scheduled to do some kind of repair at the house and found him. And uh, it set off an international day of mourning in the rock and roll community like we hadn't felt in quite some time. And there were actually reactive suicides to Kurt Cobain's death. I know. It was, it was sad when was, the stories got back. It really was. Do you remember hearing the story of him leaving or breaking out of the rehab facility and disappearing right before his body was found? No, I've never never heard that. I know that people were worried about him and that people were looking at him or looking for him. And uh, I guess nobody thought to check the house in Seattle, but that ended up being where he was. He was down in L.A. doing his uh, rehab stint, and do we even know how he got to Seattle? I don't know enough about what happened in those days, right there, when, right between when he went in and when he ended up back at the house, or how long he was there. I, I got to tell you, you've got a couple of books here. I'm going to have to borrow some some serious reading here for a future episode, but where we could dive in a little more um, about the whole Seattle scene and what happened when. I think you know, you look at, I think people always think of April 5th and they think of Kurt, but when you look back. At it when Lane Staley passed away in April 2002, right? 
That is correct. So they estimate that he died on April 5th. Coroner's report again, but nobody really knows. Nobody uh, heard from him, and uh, the people who kept an eye on his affair said that no money had been drawn from his account for a couple weeks, and somebody went over to his house, went in, and found him there. He had called his mom every day, and she got worried about not hearing from him for so long, and then finally was like, break. Send somebody over, yeah. So I think that's why we come up with April 5th. And uh, that's kind of what we're working on the premise of that. Maybe it happened right, right on that date. Maybe it was just too much for Lane at that point. The weird part for me is I remember when the Seattle scene was newer, full of joy, even in the the uh, the drop D tuning universe, right, where yeah. everything was grungy and grungy, you know, and people had a uh, the, that Seattle attitude, a little cloud and all that. There still was so much energy, good energy, and. To see one, then the other, and not to mention the other people who've who've either taken their lives or been lost to us. It always makes me think of these two and how they were kind of like brothers in there. They were in around the same time. Both Nirvana and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains were all ready. Alice in Chains just got the chance first. And they brought a lot of attention that guaranteed deals that were in the works and caused other things to happen, not to mention that every A&R cat across the country was crawling up Seattle's ass after that. Oh, yeah, people were hitting every bar in town just to find the next new thing in the grunge scene, and they were hitting every bar. Like, do you remember bands like Red Belly, which were out of that scene as well? I don't remember them, but... I'll have to find the Red Belly tune. God, I can't remember the name of it, but they sounded just like Soundgarden. Really? Yeah. Well, we can go off on a whole tangent on that, but... yeah. I, I know, I know. It's like that, but that's what it was like. Okay, a perfect example. There's been a lot of talk about when Allison Chains got signed to Columbia, the guy who signed them handed him off to Dave Jordan, masterful producer. Let's go. Well, he goes and he takes the demo and he listens to it and he didn't really like what he heard very much and he told him so, you know, go back, do more. So they went in and they actually did in the proper setting, did his demo with new songs they wrote and one jumps out. So that's kind of the direction that they took it in. That's kind of what the, the early direction of the band became and that's what you got pretty much in the beginning on Facelift. And it's kind of a bummer that nobody remembers the name of that first song. What the first song that came out? No, the first song that oh. he heard, like oh, the oh, one yeah. that the one that he was I like, couldn't. "That's the one." You couldn't remember. And in the book that I read, which was the loser, and in yeah. this one, both of them say, "I can't remember which song." But something jumped. There was one song on the demo that jumped out, and then eighteen months later, facelift was ready to go. We ever and get it just Cantrell? People. We ever get Cantrell on this podcast? That's the first question. Yes. <laughs> if we ever get him for another interview, that's the one. Do you think he'd remember that? Because it was pretty crazy in that. Time. It was. But those guys seem to have a pretty good memory about that, even though they're all smart as hell dudes. Yeah, they really are. Like, really smart. They're business smart. They're guitar mathematically science smart because they understand their instruments and how to play them. I'm going to note that. I think that's another episode. Yeah. The, the smart money men of rock and roll and women, because there's yes. a lot of women in oh, rock yeah. and roll who've expounded their personal worth after earning great amounts, too. You know? And that's, that was the game for a long time. And it still was the game back in 1989 when they dropped Facelift. And I knew one thing was changing. I was doing the rocker show on MMR in those days. And I heard about it. I got it sent to me, first on cassette, and then the single for We Die Young, which was really different than even the stuff I was playing on a hard rock metal show back then. And uh, we started playing it, and that was in the beginning of it in Philly, I think. I think right before that, I'd started playing Mother Love Bone, right around the same time. But they became something special here in the Philadelphia area where we live. And I watched it happen. I sat there as a guy who kind of set off the spark, you know, and just started watching it happen. Perfect example is the 
Clash of the Titans tour, right? They go out and they're out there with Megadeth and Slayer and Anthrax, and they are getting booed. They're getting shit thrown at them. Oh, they're getting pummeled. They come to Philadelphia. I'm so proud of this because we played the hell out of them. They come out and they got treated like rock and roll royalty. It was one of their first visits to Philly, and uh, it's a proud thing. I have a, I have a gold record for uh, facelift on my wall. That's the only one I ever got from them. The only thing I ever really feel like I helped, but I helped them there at the beginning, and it was uh, it was a it was a fun time. And same with Nirvana. I did, I caught on to them, the buzz on them when they did Bleach, but I didn't really know them that well until I heard the uh, the first three songs in Nevermind, and after that I knew that something was going to happen. Even bigger than it already begun, some cool things were happening. Oh, some very cool things were happening, not only for them, but for some of the other bands in that yeah. scene. I mean, seriously, that scene was just smoking hot, and there were just some really great bands. Kind of like when we did the Yardbirds Family Tree a few episodes ago. You had all these cats that turned out to change a whole generation of music out at a bar drinking together. The same thing happened in Seattle in the mid-'80s. Yeah, when we do the bigger Seattle episode where we just talk all about the Seattle, it won't be one band. I don't think you're going to find one band that everything fell from like we did with the Yardbirds, but I think what you're going to find is the Seattle scene is the tree. It's going to be a mind blower. It'll make yep. you say, what, about five yeah. times. You oh, know? absolutely. And there are some <laughs> great female bands in the Seattle scene that will be mentioned and discussed and dissected as well. But No dissection with well, the ladies. Come sad. on, Marcus. Sorry. I warned you about that. Sorry. <laughs> The thing that's hard for me to, to, to grasp, you look at the impact that um, Nirvana made in a short window, and that happens sometimes. You mentioned uh, rock and roll casualties. Kurt, unfortunately, is a member of the 27 Club, people yeah. who died at age 27, you know, Morrison and Hendricks and oh, Jesus. Janis Joplin. Janis Joplin. There's others, too. There's We could go. The a list huge goes list. Long. But Lane was older, and I, I don't know. I guess there are some old junkies, but I don't think there's that many. Yeah, 34. 34. That's, that's incredibly young. And tragic. Still, I mean, you know, years after Kurt, I don't know if that was what happened, because we know that it was a, a dose of heroin. It must have been something powerful. Or nobody really knows except for maybe the people who got it for him. On that date, years later, take his own life. And, the, and it's it's one of the saddest things I've ever experienced in my my life in rock and roll, my crazy imbalanced life in rock and roll. Lane's death was definitely a lot harder for me than Kurt Cobain's death. I was more of a Seattle, I was more of a Soundgarden, Alice in Chains guy when the scene first blew up. Mm-hmm. I love Mother Love Bone a ton too. Like those three, and then Grunt Truck are my four bands in the Seattle scene You're that a I grunt really. Grunt Truck guy, wow! I love Grunt Truck. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, some things good do come out of pain and loss. The guy who says that the day Kurt died, the day he heard about it, was the darkest day of his life, Dave Grohl, then went on, took some time, did the grieving process, part of it, finding his own voice, and founding one of the great future Rock and Roll Hall of Famers out there. I, you know, I think he'll be a guy who's in for two reasons. And when you look the path that Allison Chains took, we talked about this on the phone the other day. They didn't think they'd ever find their voice. That's true. Jerry did solo stuff. Yeah. There was a lot of nothing going on. There was a lot of nothing. Who knows what Sean Kinney was even doing at that time. It's probably a bunch of small projects, some studio work. You know, and hanging out. they made a lot. And they, they made, made a and ton. They, and they're smart businessmen. Yes. Again, are. all of them are. Yeah. And, you know, they, they fast forward and, and they find William. Now, I don't think they could have guessed in a million years that there was a guy out there who could bring more than just the voice to the party. The guy brought the feel. He wrote songs and uh, helped to bring them back for all of us. Something that I think even the guys in the band probably had written off a long time ago till they went and met William Duvall. 
I'm fine with it. I've seen both Allison Chains with Lane Staley three or four times and Allison Chains with William Duvall about nine times just because MMR has had them for the first three albums, all yeah. three albums, and we've done a lot with them. And that first uh, year they came back, I think they did six shows in, in the Philly area in the first two years they were back and on the road, and I saw five of those six. Mm, I think I was at two or three of them myself. And every one of them was dynamic and exceptional. Yeah. But Allison Chains was always just a great live band the whole thing about him and kim thale that i recently read about surprised me because we were talking about their early demos and stuff and and guys were playing each other their stuff and um kim had heard their stuff and he was thought it was was different it was probably more like you know the, the stuff people were playing to get signed back then and he asked about the drop D tuning. And then Jerry started playing a lot. That's probably that second demo that uh, Dave Jordan heard, right? I would bet there's a bunch more drop D tuning in it. Yeah. Lane described the name of the band as glam and drag. That's how he described their sound and the name and what they were. Well, it's apropos. Can't argue with that. So there's inspiration down the line. And Allison Chains comes back. You've got Foo Fighters, but you know it's the same thing that happened with people who listen to music and Jimmy and Janice and Jim and the Doors and all that. Right at the beginning, when they lost them all one after the other, they sat there and said, "What could have been?" You know. And I still today I hear some of these uh, legacy recordings uh, that have been in the vault for forever of Jimi Hendrix, and I hear stuff that's just otherworldly that was already done back then. And I wonder where the hell would we be with uh, a potent Nirvana? You know, with Alice in Chains and Lane in the in the driver's seat. And you know, you gotta you gotta ask those questions sometimes in your quiet moments. I'm asking it here on the podcast. Do you think Nirvana would still be together today, or do you think Kurt would have done his own thing by now? We'll never know. That's true, but there's always been that type of pontification. And then you have the hardcore like Nir- not Nirvana, but the hardcore like uh, Cobain fans who say he would have left the band to do his own thing. And I don't know if I agree with that wholly. Again, it's hard to speculate where they would be. Would Alice in Chains still be? together it's hard to say because lane's heroin habit was pretty bad during that last tour during their final unplugged performance their unplugged performance was fantastic Mm -hmm. but you could see the effects of heroin on him at that time see i remember them being more fun than that first time i ever met them we'd been playing them my show had been on the air for about a year and i went to la for the first time and went to the foundation's forum big concrete marketing convention my first time there and my friends from Columbia take me down and say, we're going to go see the guys. I brought my tape deck. I'm all excited. I'm going to do interviews in L.A. on my first trip to L.A. It's one of the first ones I did. And the door flies open on the room as, you know, as he walks up, puts the key in. The door flies open. And I walk in, and there's five, six guys, and they're all flying all over the room. Two of them have pillows and are bashing the hell out of each other. They're oh, in the no. middle of one of the beds. I walked into a damn pillow fight. And that's how the interview started. It was in, it, That was what it was on the air. Like, hey, you know, we're here live in L.A., that's and I walk in, and that was, and it was a pillow fight. That's amazing. <laughs> you have to post that on the website if you have any of that stuff. Uh, I do. I got to find it's on a dat. Does anybody have a dat player? <laughs> we'll we have one. one. We'll get one. We'll, we'll convert one. one. Yeah, sure. we can do that. Yeah, we can do that. But yeah, some of that stuff would be great to hear and share because moments like that just show what Lane was really like. And he yeah. was an easygoing guy. I had read a story in one of these books. It was either Loser or Everybody Loves Our Town where they were playing in Japan and they had like three or four days off. Mm-hmm. Lane disappeared and they walk into a bar and Lane's behind the bar bartending and breathing fire. He got a job as a bartender <laughs> for three days. I believe that. 
And they were like, uh, okay. And they All watched right. him breathe fire. And he's like, I'd never breathed fire before. And he did. Yeah, and he did it once and he didn't want to leave. And that's yep. the problem, right? So he was that type of guy. And he was yep. really fun-loving, easygoing guy. I think both Lane and Kurt seemed to be very kind and good souls in a very nasty business. Yes, I agree. Fast forward a couple of years from the pillow fight. Okay. I'm on, I don't know how this happened. And, uh, maybe the people from Concrete could tell me, but it's another few years later, Foundations Forum. Much has changed in the world. And, uh, and there I am on a panel with a bunch of people from the industry. I think Jimmy Cardillo was on that one. And I'm, to, to, I think he was on my one side and the other side. It's Lane Staley. I'm so excited. I'm going to be hanging out with Lane all day. So we're just kibitzing and this and that. And our good friend Cheryl Valentine, who now works for Warner Brothers, comes up with the idea that we need drinks. Panel starts at 10 a.m., but you need drinks. What are we having, gentlemen? Okay, I'll have a cranberry, vodka and cranberry. Yeah, Lane has one. Off to the bar. We start the panel. She walks in, drinks for me and Lane, walks back to her seat. There's an inch left in the glass. She gets up. She goes out. She comes back in. This goes on through the entire panel. And every time she comes up, the whole room's laughing, and the drinks are piling up, and I'm looking at him, and he's looking yeah. at me. It was one of the most fun industry-type things that I ever did. What did you guys talk about? Like, what kind of questions were posed to Lane that day? Oh, you want me to remember that after four or five? Maybe <laughs> just a rough idea. It, you know, not specifics. I, I think it was about, uh, uh, at that point, I'm thinking that the timing, it was probably about growing, emerging musical trends and things like that. One, probably one of those panels. and they Because there were artists, there were managers, and uh, a couple industry guys like me. Was that Dirt, Jar Flies? What time period was uh, that? Yeah, it was right okay. in there. Right in there. Just a couple. Of, I, I got to go back you know what i can find out because i i think there's archives of that stuff now i just got to go find the uh, dates that was one of those things that, that really gives you an idea of what a person's about and then after that i heard about the heroin and then after that i saw bad things bad things happen when you do a lot of heroin any i don't know anything good that has ever happened to anybody for doing heroin truth three-legged dog came out a few years later and I don't know about you, but I remember hearing like Sludge Factory for the first time and again for the first time and just being blown away by how good they were. Just yeah. so raw, just so heavy. I was listening to Jar of Flies with the uh, windows open last night, the front door, back door, the air flying through the house. Just wonderful, wonderful. And that's where I think that it changed. There are things that changed, and some of it's reflected in the music. And I, I don't know so much with Nirvana if that's the case. Maybe a little bit, but most of it seemed to be like they were on a path. They oh, yeah. were heading somewhere good. Kurt, I mean, they were already with somewhere good, but they were heading somewhere good. Oh, yeah. Kurt was fully in charge of the band, and he knew exactly what he wanted to do. He was sitting down with some people at one point. And it, it was in Loser, and I've got it noted. I think it was on page 110. He was sitting down with the band, and they were talking about whether they wanted to stay on a small indie label or go major label, and they were talking, and all of a sudden, Kurt, who hadn't said a single word during the entire interview, was basically like, we want to go major label. And he knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to be a great songwriter. He wanted to write great pop rock songs, and he was able to put his emotion in it. There were some interesting descriptives about his abilities to make people feel uncomfortable with their discomforts and with the, what they were uncomfortable with. He was that type of person. Yeah, I, I saw that in a lot of my reading about his his growing up and his personality that he kind of became contrary with people because he was testing people he was always testing because he helped he dealt with a lot of shit in his life divorce is never a pretty thing his parents divorce didn't go well he had good things and bad things on both sides post the divorce and he kind of created his own little bubble his own little place where he could just do his thing and he said all kinds of things that just to be controversial just to stir things up this is long before nirvana and when he was like 17 years old his 
his dad had broken his, smashed his guitar in front of him for playing his guitar too loud. And right after that, like a few weeks later, he left home and started living on his friends' couches. And that was, I think, mm-hmm. one of the Dale Crover stories. Yeah, and it's, Dale Crover, it's the Melvins, has of, a great stories because he played in early bands with them. Right. But see, that's what musicians went through, sleeping on couches. You know, Springsteen went through a lot of that same kind of stuff where dad didn't approve. And, you, you know, you kind of goddamn guitar and all those great stories that Bruce tells. I think it's endemic to anything that's that different enough that it's going to change things when it gets out there at the beginning. It's got to annoy the shit out of mom and dad more than Funhouse bothered your mom. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I know my mom was freaking out when I got a hold of Funhouse. But think about these people who are voices of generations and the yeah. uphill battles that they have, not only in the music world, but in real world. Everybody's battle is different, but every one of them has some sort of battle where many of them are told, oh, you'll never do it, you'll never do it, you'll never do it. And Kurt was one of those dudes who was beaten down and beaten down and beaten down and finally he was like fuck you i'm doing it you know what's weird i just thought of something while you were talking before because people ask kurt if he wanted if they wanted to stay indie and, and or whether they wanted to break big right when I, I went to houston a couple months before it came out before nevermind came out i went down to see another band with geffen records and uh, my buddies kato and rosie took me up to their room so i could sample some of the new stuff on geffen including three songs were on a cassette that were the first three songs from um, never mind. I was so blown away, I didn't know what to do. I mean, like back then, you couldn't go on social media, say, and just go, I just heard three of the most amazing songs that are going to change everything. You, you, it was just all word of mouth. So that night, before everybody goes to see the band uh, that we're in, in Houston to see, I'm standing there, Gary Gersh, the guy who signed them, the Geffen, Nirvana, right? I said, so what do you think you have here with this band? And he says, oh, we figure we'll sell a couple hundred thousand. <laughs> I guess that was based on what Bleach had done and where they were heading. I said, Gary, if this thing doesn't sell two million copies, I'm quitting this fucking business. You said that to him? Yeah. You said that to him? I did. Holy shit. What was his response to that comment? He says, you really think so? And I said, listen, Cato and Rosie played me three songs. I wanted to take the cassette. Like, I almost wrestled it from them. And he was like, you'll be getting a copy next week. I'll make sure you get one. Fast forward. You want to hear the... Because yeah. there's a lot more to the yeah. story about Nirvana. But fast forward to, I'd say, a year and a half, two years later. Big square thing shows up at my office at the Friday morning quarterback. And, you know, you're like, hey, that looks pretty big. You know, and I open it up. And it's the Nirvana Award with the baby and all that. 3D baby. And it's a little note from Gary Gers says, Ray, you were wrong. It didn't sell two million. It was the award for four million. Which has gone on to sell many more than that. Like 10 million or something yeah. like that. But it was like, you were wrong. It sold four million. Nah, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's my Nirvana's going to be but huger than huge story. I think it was June 10th, 1991. I saw them right before they blew up. They were opening for Dinosaur Jr. Yeah, they were just They out. were the opening band. They were out just doing stores. And they, were, they yeah. were great. They were great live. They came on, played their ass-kicking set, and left. Here's I've actually printed out the set list from setlist.fm at the show that night. And I've got one friend I know was there, and he's trying to find his notes to see if that was the right set list. The other one's passed away, so I can't find his set list. But here's what they played at the Gothic Theater that night. School Smells Like Teen Spirit, Floyd the Barber, Breed, Territorial Pissings, Love Buzz, About a Girl Sliver, Negative Creep, Stain, and Blue. 
That's a really good and, and eleven song set list. Yes. Wow. And Dinosaur Junior was there. You know, the first time I saw him, it was a different set list, but it was the same kind of thing, like twelve songs. I think in those days they didn't do the same set list every <laughs> night because it was pretty much whatever the fuck Kurt felt like playing in on, a lot of ways, or the, the band felt edge, like. Yeah. On the front front edge of Nevermind, there was a little bit more of the stuff that was on that record, as I recall. I have to go back and see if I can find that. But it was J.C. Dobbs on South Street. Anybody who was there knows how tight that room was that. It was a small bar, if you remember, the old dogs. You couldn't move. It's one of those things where, you know, the, there was probably 150 people there, but there's 1,500 people who said they were. I bet that show in that place was amazing. I mean, we were at the old uh, the old Gothic Theater in Englewood, which I think held like uh, maybe 1,100, including the balcony. Right. Eight, mm-hmm. Somewhere between mm-hmm. 800 and 1,100. I don't even remember if the balcony was full because I was down in the open area towards the back and it was great i was plastered to the back there was a back wall at dobbs you would come in through the front door and there was like little plywood wall and i was like plastered to the other side of that front it was crazy just crazy bodies flying everywhere who played with them from philly that night because there had to be a philly band on that bill in some capacity if any of my dobbs friends are listening and you remember i'll have to go look it up i'll let you know next time i see you how's that that brings up a pretty cool idea for um for future episodes what the podcast update shit we couldn't figure out last week well the stuff we couldn't figure out last week by the way the quote about not everybody bought the record but everybody who bought the record formed a band yes lou reed it was (laughs) just so you know yeah lou reed's amazing (laughs) we'll have to start doing this so that's our first podcast update from last week it was lou reed but this is the imbalance history of rock and roll and i want to thank everybody who tunes in it's a fun thing for us to do hopefully you're enjoying it too i keep getting positive responses from people so you know as, as long well. as as long as we keep getting positive responses like they mm-hmm. like it we'll keep doing it i definitely want to talk a little bit about their impact a little bit more because both voices were voices of a generation like chris cornell like a jimmy page the thing about this seattle scene even though i I'm sure at some points there was a lot of ego and some of the bands that were not as big as some of the other bands were jealous of the bands that found bigger success than the other bands. And I'm sure there was a lot of ego, but there was still a lot of support and they really, there was a specialness like the British invasion specialness Mm -hmm. where these guys all knowing that they were going to play music the rest of their lives and didn't give a crap if they had to sling crap in kitchens or work at bookstores or work at porn shops, they didn't give a shit. They were still going to play music at night or whenever yep kurt's uncle gave him a choice on his 14th birthday he could either have a bike or a used guitar and kurt chose the guitar i'm not surprised so that's that, that's what that's what i that's what i found out about that i don't know but um who the hell was somebody i think it might have been staley was originally a, played trumpet you know i mean look music draws people yep. in and when you're a kid learning instruments your parents influence is larger but you have no idea if the guy who was sitting next to you in band in high school is going to be the guy whose you know music helps to change the, the course of music the world mm. you just don't and you know what I, I actually i actually went to high school with a guy who was immensely talented saxophone was his instrument reeds and woodwinds and whole career my friend ron kerber with the philadelphia orchestra i knew he was good but man ron <laughs> good 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 he's beyond philly good pops. Yep. yeah philly pops philly orchestra teacher at u arts mm-hmm. you just never know when the guy next to you or the guy that was your bass player in your high school band is going to be in a band that's going to change the world it's the nature of things happening unfortunately the things that happened on april 5th were sad ones and it's sad for both of us you know when you think about your all the great feelings you got and still get in your life from the music of kurt cobain and lane staley and their bands it's bittersweet a little melancholy 
I had just moved to Philly, and I'd been in Philly for two months when Lane Staley died. Had not been on the radio at MMR yet. I was still getting my feet wet in Philadelphia and figuring my way around. I was kind of finding my way from my job at the record company to my job at MGK. I was in the in-between process on all that, and uh, it just punched me in the gut, man. I remember that. I cried. I was at home, and I was on my day off, and I cried that day. It was a heartbreaking day. Well, this is where I th- was afraid we were going to go. <laughs> I know how it feels for you. Yeah. I know how it feels for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not the cheeriest way to wrap up our podcast, but uh, I think it's apropos because the uh, you always say uh, April showers bring, bring May flowers, but in this case, the flowers wilted before they got to May. And April will always be the month, and April 5th will always be the date that we remember both of those Amazing guys. Yes. Even if it's uh, six hours, 12 hours off to a different day, those are the days that the coroner's made official. This is the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast. I'm Ray Koo with Marcus in the Darkest, and uh, we've been talking about Kurt Cobain and Lane Staley and their uh, their common departure point on the calendar from this planet, and a lot of the other things that uh, sounds like it's been, you know, this is how we feel about this music and these events that changed the musical direction of things in our lives, and it's just a different kind of tone that we've taken on a lot of our podcasts, you know, it's a little bit more heavy subject matter, so you don't talk about suicide and drug overdose on, this, on our podcast every day, and we won't, but nope. this is uh, something we wanted to do and we wanted to get it into the month of april and uh we want to thank you for tuning in spread the word about the uh the podcast if you will and and tell everybody how they can reach us on uh, email and social media my friend imbalanced history at gmail.com imbalanced history on twitter facebook as well imbalanced history of rock and roll the imbalanced history of rock and roll it's a production of Dark Doc Media. I'm the Doc, Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we'll catch you next time right here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.